All right, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Thanks for your patience while we were getting a few things set uh, in between. We added some time to the community break, so a little extra uh, break for you. If you're watching online, thanks for being with us today. It's Memorial Day weekend, and so I know that uh, uh, some people uh, are at home watching, trying to avoid some of the traffic, uh, and others might be vacationing, so we're glad that you are with us. Uh, and I just want to take a moment, uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the missions groups that Kayla mentioned uh, is uh, Agape Ministries in Kenya. This is an organization that we've worked with now for years and years and years. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, and I keep forgetting to do this, but two weeks ago, uh, Peter, uh, who is uh, living here in the United States right now, getting his master's, we were able to sponsor him. So I don't, I don't know if you understand the, the, the ramifications of that. So as a church, we were able to sponsor him uh, getting to the States. Uh, we are helping to fund his expenses while he is here, getting his master's degree. And that is in just like, like for us as a church to be able to, we're not just blessing him, like we're changing the direction of his entire family, right? For generations to come, uh, there will be blessing in their lives because of the extended education that Peter is able to get. And he asked me to give his dad a shout out uh, two weeks ago because he had a birthday. Uh, and Bishop Evans is my friend. And I just want to say happy birthday to Bishop Evans. If you could right now, could we just give him a happy birthday? So he watches every week. Happy birthday, Bishop Evans. Uh, We love you. Uh, If you have not met Peter yet, you need to meet him. Uh, So you'll hear us, you'll hear some people call him Peter, and then some people call him Pita. So uh, Kenya was uh, colonized for quite a while by Britain, and so they they do, uh, uh, their, their English is so British. And so uh, they pronounce Peter, Pita. And so I learned it as Pita because that's how they say it there. And so I call him Pita. And then the kids think I'm saying pizza uh, uh, or Pita bread. Uh, and then other people correct me and go, have you never read his name? When he writes it down, it's Peter. And so uh, just, you know, he answers to them all. He's an amazing young man, comes from a great family. And uh, just want to take a moment to do that. Hey, I had told you that we were going to be wrapping up prophecy this week. And uh, that was really my intention until I was finalizing the sermon. And so we'll be wrapping up prophecy next weekend uh, because I just can't get judgment into today's message. So next week we'll be talking about judgment. Today, though, we're going to be uh, in Revelation chapter 20. So if you would stand to your feet uh, for the reading of the word, we're going to begin in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And they threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So today I want to take some time to talk about the millennial reign. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. I thank you for your word. I pray that as we study it, Lord, that we are... Uh, we're able to discover the truths that are in it and that we're able to separate the lies that uh, are propagated about it. Lord, that we would be inspired and Lord, that our lives would be a reflection of who you are calling us to be in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Uh, I'm going to do a, just a real quick recap uh, or review from our very first week. We talked about three primary views when it comes to the millennial reign. So the millennial reign is uh, basically uh, this idea that uh, gets defined out of Revelation 20. And, and let me just back up to this and say that, that this period of time um, is one of the most prophesied about events in Scripture, okay? This period of a thousand years. And we're going to cover just a drop in the bucket of Scripture when it comes to what this period of time looks like. So there are three primary views. The first that I'll mention is post-millennialism. This is that Jesus will not return until Christianity has been dominant on the earth for a long period of time. So uh, initially this view held that it would be for a period of a thousand years, but then clearly a thousand years had come and gone. And they said, well, the thousand years is just relative to a lot of time. I mean, you know, it could be longer. And so the idea here is that the church has to have dominion over the earth before Jesus will uh, return. Amillennialism, uh, the idea that God's work with Israel is complete and there is no thousand year reign, it is up to the church to establish Christ's rule on the earth. And so very similar, except that they are not looking necessarily for Jesus to return, quote unquote. Uh, an amillennialist would say that Jesus is here present inside of us. And then there is the third view, which is the view that I'll be teaching out of today. And this is premillennialism. 
This is following a seven-year tribulation. Jesus will return and establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years before allowing the enemy one last rebellion. Now, one of the questions that comes up, right, is why does this matter? Why does it matter what your view is on this? So we have a lot of uh, doctrine that we hold to be what we call open-handed versus closed-handed. So there's a lot of doctrinal ideas out there that we say, well, that's open-handed, right? Okay. It's okay for you to believe this, right? Uh, In the end, we don't think it's a heaven and hell issue. But then there are things that we say are closed-handed, and we say, like, these are are uh, gospel-central ideas. We can't debate them, right? Uh, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came to pay the price. The Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth, that He died on the cross, He resurrected, that He's soon returning. Like, these are things that we would say— closed-handed. The millennial reign, I want to make this argument that it really, it really lands in this place that's in between. And, and why do I say that? Well, I say that it's open-handed because I think that at the end of the day, uh, uh, you could believe one of the other views and still land in eternity. I don't think that it's a gospel issue. The problem is, and why I tend to want to put it into a closed-handed viewpoint is because it really becomes the lens through which we interpret Scripture, right? Because if we land in a camp that is not premillennial, that Jesus is not returning to establish a thousand-year reign as king, then we begin to go, okay, well, this idea is not a literal idea. So now we have the liberty to be able to say that this is not a literal idea and this is not a literal idea. And all of a sudden we begin to see parts of scripture kind of fall apart. That does impact the gospel and does allow for this viewpoint to rise up that we see rising right now in the United States of America inside of our churches. And I say our nation because this is what I'm familiar with and I don't so much see it happening or hear testimonies of it happening outside of our nation. And that is this progressive Christianity, this theology that says that, you know, uh, the Bible is just a loose set of guidelines. People encountered God and then in their own flesh and their own failures and their own humanity, they did the best they could to write it down, but it's filled with their biases and their, you know, uh, their, their own hate, their own racism. And so we have to kind of weed through it and figure out what's good and what's bad. And then all of a sudden, there's no consequences for anything in life. And everything that we do, you know, becomes justified uh, before our fellow brothers and sisters and anybody that would, you know, condemn me for something that I do. Well, they don't know what love is. Jesus is love. Jesus is like, whatever you want to do, go do it. And you just see it's a slippery slope. Uh, when, when we take uh, portions of Scripture that have such literal writing inside of them and we begin to go, well, I, I don't take that to be literal. So what I hope to do today is to lay out for some, in some part why I think that this is a, a literal section of Scripture. So we're going to go to Isaiah 24, verse 21. And like I said, there are, a, there are so many Scriptures I cut uh, first of all, I, I put just a handful of them in, and I cut those in half uh, just to make sure that I did not eat into your Memorial Day weekend any more than I had to, because I know that good lunches await. Uh, and so uh, this, this one right here, though, is, is really good because this becomes one of those verses that, uh, that a lot of 
people who fall into other camps will kind of gravitate to. It says that on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And so the question then becomes, what are many days? All right. So many days becomes the, the argument, well, you know, we look over here in Isaiah and there's not an exact time frame that's given. Can I just tell you that from a, from a prophecy standpoint inside of Scripture, that is super normal to give this idea. Like, do you think that when Isaiah prophesied that God was coming in the flesh, that God with us, that people had this image of Jesus immediately? No, the, the prophecies begin to be refined the closer we get to them and as they're being fulfilled. In fact, the argument is, is well established that even those that were closest to Jesus sharing in that last dinner with him, believed that he was about to become an army leader and demolish the kings of the world and that he was going to rule and reign right then and there. And they were asking, hey, when you're sitting on the throne, who's going to be at your right hand? Can it be me? And they're sitting here having this debate, right? Because, because they did not look at the, the, the scriptures, the prophecies that were there and get full understanding from them. And so the idea that many days somehow Oh, uh, supersedes what we find in Revelation is not really a good argument. So in order to answer the question of many days, I, I, I think that we have to uh, realize that the millennial reign is in the future. So let's take a look at the past, right? What do, what do we think of the past? And to look at the past, we need to decide who is an authority. So we've seen the evolution of man, right? Uh, we started as monkeys, we became Lord Vader in a galaxy far, far away, and somehow we ended up here. I guess that's de-evolution because the Force abandoned us. Uh, maybe you don't watch Star Wars. Um, so I had, uh, in elementary school, we had a, a science teacher, um, and he, he really should have been the arts and crafts teacher. I mean, no slam on him, because he took a mannequin and glued so much hair to it, right? I mean, this intricate, like, hairy-looking, like, it was, it was the thing of a horror movie, right? I think, what's that, uh, that app uh, we, where uh, you're, like, working at night and the monsters come alive and try to kill you? Uh, Someone, some kid knows. I could see it right here. Freddy's, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's something like that. Like as kids, we thought that thing, when the teacher leaves the room, it's just going gonna, gonna to get us all, right? Um, but he had this thing, and he constantly used it as a conversation piece to tell us that it was incontrovertible proof that we came from monkeys, right? Now, clearly, a mannequin with hair glued to it was, no matter how good a job he did, uh, was not incontrovertible truth, right? It is just a theory that uh, was propagated uh, and kind of designed by a man named Charles Darwin. I could talk about Darwin a little bit later. Uh, a, a very uh, interesting, genuinely racist individual uh, who is heralded as being like the, the, this, the king of discovery for uh, humanity. Uh, but the idea was that, that in order to propagate what this teacher believed to be true, he was willing to say whatever he needed to say to fill in the gaps, right? We, we call this the ends justify the means, right? But do they really justify the means? 
right? I mean, are, are we able to say that we so believe something that we can fill in all the gaps with lies because it's worth getting to the place, right? I would argue no. And I would argue that that doesn't just apply for the, uh, the, the gentleman who is an you know, evolutionist or a atheist teaching seventh graders. Uh, it applies to the church, right? We have to be able to look at the evidences around us and find out, okay, how is it, if Scripture is true, how does this work in harmony with the world around us? One of the things that amazes me is the lack of logic that the world around us is constantly presenting, right? There are literally thousands of articles that you can look up on what bacteria on Mars would mean, right? Life would be proven to exist beyond the, 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 the atmosphere of Earth. To find bacteria on Mars would be incredible, proof that life can be sustained elsewhere. Yet a fetus with eyes, a beating heart, and a brain is not life. And I think, man, that's, that's a, that's like, logical gymnastics, and you're not good at it, right? You would not get the gold in that uh, uh, competition. So, in order to determine how old the earth is, right, somebody's got to be able to be an expert in it. So, I went to the same experts that tell me that bacteria on Mars would be life, but a baby is not. That's that's, those experts are Google, and Google quoted Wikipedia for me, another reliable source. That's the, the the human encyclopedia. That means that moderators who have been on Wikipedia for a really long time get to decide what's true and what's not, right? So there's not an academic standard. There's a, are you committed to Wikipedia standard? And you can go and look up these incredible statistics for yourself as well. And I asked them, how old is the earth? And believe it or not, they knew. 4.54 billion years. They also told me how old Venus was, Mercury, Jupiter, the Sun, and Saturn. Now, personally, I like to think the Earth is 4.55 billion years old, but my science is a little bit different than their science, and so they came up with 4.54 billion years. And I think right now is an appropriate time for us to pause a moment of silence for Pluto. It was a planet, and then it wasn't. It's okay. It's all right. Now, if we go to the Bible and ask how old the earth is, a lot of pastors are going to tell you, oh, well, the Bible says that the earth is 6,000-ish years old, right? Now, I got to tell you that that's actually not what Scripture says. The Scripture doesn't say that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. I actually do not have my chalk. I just want to point that out. Um, Instead, what it tells us is it gives us a, a genealogy that shows us that man has been on earth for roughly 6,000 years. Chris, thank you. You're a gentleman and a scholar. I appreciate it. So, 6,000 years. Yeah, give it up for Chris. There you go. So, this we would say is year one, all right? We get Adam and we get Eve, okay? And then a span of time that brings us, we're going to just say to pre-tribulation, we don't know where that's at, somewhere over here, pre-Jesus' return, 
and get into all those debates later. And we end up at 6,000 years, okay? So the genealogy, the, the record of, of families inside of Scripture is incredibly well-preserved. It's incredibly well thought out, and it is incredibly detailed. So if the Scripture says that humanity has been on earth for 6,000 years, does that create some type of contradiction when we begin to refine some of our scientific methods to determine how old something else is? I'm going to make the argument that it doesn't. Uh, so I want you guys to, to look at something with me for a moment. Exodus chapter 24. This is a passage I have taught on many, many times, and there's a really great principle in here that is a sermon all into itself. So if you've never heard me teach on this, uh, we'll try to put a link to it in uh, the description, which will not happen today, but later in the week. Um, look at this passage. It says that the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. The key here is that uh, God has delivered the children of Israel as slaves out of Egypt. The Hebrew people now are sitting here. God wants to meet with them. They are terrified. Why? Because their whole lives they've been told there's a God of dirt. There's a God of the sun. There's a God of air. You want to have a baby? There's a God for that. None of those gods ever show up. And here comes old Moses, and Moses says, hey, the God that created all of humanity has claimed you to be his own. You're about to be free. And they're like, whatever, Pharaoh's never going to let us go. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's uh, you know, dissension and rebellion leads to all of Egypt suffering these plagues to the point where he's like, get out of here. So the Hebrew people are confused. So they take off. Then they get cornered against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies because Pharaoh woke up and said, whoa, who's going to build all my buildings if I let my slaves go? So he chases them down. And then the sea divides. They walk across on dry ground. I'm sure at this point they're freaking out, right? You get to the other side and the God that Moses is talking about is showing up and doing stuff but all these other infinite number of gods have never actually shown up and done anything. And then the waters come and crash in on top of Pharaoh and his armies, and they end up at Mount Sinai. God manifests himself as this cloud on top of the mountain and says, hey, come on up here. I want to commune with you. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're terrified. We're not doing that. Why? Because they've always been told that the gods are angry, right? And the gods are crazy. The gods are going to get you. Um, really great movie if you're ever interested. Uh, the, gods might, the gods are crazy. The, the gods might be crazy. It's uh, about a uh, man in Kenya and a pilot flies by and throws Coca-Cola bottle over, it almost hits him, and he thinks the gods have given him a gift, right? Totally side. Why, why did I say that? I don't know. They get there, and God tells Moses this incredible thing. He says, go up on the mountain, and look at how this is, wait there. And I just think that there's something about this idea. God understands how we're wired, right? So he tells him to go up on the mountain and be there, just be there, just exist, right? In fact, the, the word there is from the Hebrew derivative hayah, which is where we also get this picture of Moses in the burning bush. And he says, who, who do I say sent me? And he says, I am that I am. He says, hayah, I exist, right? And he tells him, I want you to go up on the mountain and exist. Why? Because 
you know, men see getting to the top of the mountain as a challenge, right? If you've never been to the top of a mountain, like you've done the work to get up there, I'm not talking about like getting in your car and driving up to the top. I'm talking about like climbing a mountain. That's hard work. That's, that's really difficult. And I really appreciated the experience of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro years ago, how difficult that was, right? Throwing up and oxygen deprivation and just viruses and everything else. Getting to the top was a really difficult thing to do. So getting to the top of the mountain, what's on your mind is, how am I getting off of this mountain, right? Because getting up the mountain's fun, but I do not want to live on the top of the mountain because nothing else lives up there. You know what I'm saying? It's not like an exactly, it's like a paradise. It's beautiful for a moment, but you want to get back down. But he tells him, I want you to go up on the mountain. I want you to exist, right? Now watch this. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Interestingly enough, right here, we translate this as was, okay? This is not a bad translation, but a lot of times, you know how like a comma in the middle of a sentence just being shifted one way or the other can make it go, oh, hold on, that says something completely different, right? The interpret, how we interpret this idea of was is really quite critical because this word is another one of those examples where it's saying that the earth existed, just like he told Moses, go up and exist. He's writing here, and it says that the earth existed, okay, without form and void. Without form and void. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, end of thought. Second thought, the earth existed and was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here's what we know. God does not create chaos. So if God created the heavens and the earth, uh, th these words here, uh, without form vo and void, like we like to think like, oh, well, He created a marble, and it was beautiful. And that's the imagery that's there. But that's not the imagery in the Hebrew. These, these would be ideas like um, desolate, destruction. Uh, it would be uh, post-apocalyptic. Like the Hebrew language here would be used not to just say like, like a sheet of glass, but it would be in the ruins of something. Now, I make the argument God does not create chaos. He does not create things that are not beautiful. And the Bible, interestingly enough, also says this. In fact, it actually says it about Genesis 1-1 in Job 38. Now, Job has admittedly and understandably gotten a little bit irritated. Uh, everything in his life has been flipped upside down, taken from him. And there have to be those thoughts in your mind that go, God, are you angry at me? Right? So he's kind of questioning God. And God responds, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measure? J just also too, like, can I just, I got a lot of thoughts on this message. And a lot of it just comes from the fact that I stood in line ride, to ride roller coasters all week, right, with my kids. So it's like two hours of just meditating and thinking. So um, bear with me for a moment. Like this idea that's like, well, I probably have some of it wrong, but when I get before God, it's going to be like, I'm just, you know, we're going to talk about it. 
right? right? I, I, I think God's going to sass you, right? God's going to be like, oh, really? That's how you feel? Well, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And you think that's bad? Go read the entire chapter. Again, I don't have time, but the entire chapter is like all, you, you thought that well, you were wrong, right? And, and, and here's the thing, I already told you you were wrong, but you ignored me when I told you you were wrong, and you continued to have this idea that uh, you knew better than I did. So he says, tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Watch this. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when the earth was created, right? Whatever the spiritual hosts that operate around God are, whoever they are, that this, this we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, wh- whoever it is that when uh, uh, Elisha comes out and his servants freaking out because the army surrounded them and he says, hey, uh, God, open the eyes of his understanding that he will see that those that are with us are greater than those who are against us. And all of a sudden he could see chariots of fire had surrounded the other army. Whoever those people are in those chariots of fire. When the earth was created, they did not think it was barren and desolate. They thought, man, this is incredible. This is incredible. So in Genesis 1-1, things are amazing. And then something happens. I don't know what it is, but this poetry, and, and, and if you're not aware, the, the, the Genesis account of creation is actually, that beginning part is a poem in the Hebrew. Uh, something happens between what is beautiful and amazing in God's creation as God describes it in Job. And we enter into this place of unknown, and then Genesis 1-2, a wasteland exists. So could this be where this rebellion between the enemy and God took place? What, what is it that brought destruction? I don't know what it is, but what we know is that God was present and that the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the earth. So here's the thing, the earth, could be very old, and man only 6,000 years old. And Scripture does not make some huge debate about that. And so you you can land in a camp that, again, I would say is open-handed, where you can go, yeah, I can believe that the earth is pretty old, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. When we get to judgment at the end of the millennial reign next week, we're going to be talking about how God establishes a, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. And just a little spoiler, um, I'll, I'll have better imagery for you. But if this is earth as it exists right now, right, the measurements for the new Jerusalem look like that. Now, I, I don't know how a, a, a city with a facility that goes that high into outer space exists, does the new earth then end up becoming a bigger earth? Or or is there something about physics that shifts or changes? But that's what it says when we're looking at the dimensions. So I would make the argument that the earth could be very old and the earth could be around for a very long time. The earth isn't going anywhere. Now, let's jump back into the fact that now I've established that we can look at at time in the past and say, well, the Scripture says 6,000 years by genealogy, then I think that the Scripture is able to tell us that when it is talking about a millennium, and this is in the Latin, the, 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 the words that were here, that when it talks about the thousand years, it is from the Latin meaning 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Now, if I told you 
that I had something I was willing to sell you for $1,000, and you showed up with $600. And I said, whoa, 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 I told you it was going to be $1,000. And you said, well, I interpret 1000 as just a lot. It's just a lot, right? Well, every other time I talk about dollars, I'm talking about dollars, right? I'm talking one for one, 1000 for 1000 So what made you think that just bringing a bunch of dollars in here was going to work, right? I, there, there's, this, there's this consistency when it comes to what we see in measurements, when we see uh, measurements of, uh, of cities, of equipment, and when we look at measurements of time, they're consistent throughout Scripture. In fact, when we end up in the 6,000-year period, Adam and Eve come on the scene, right? There's the temptation in the garden. Adam and Eve fall. Some really interesting things we'll talk about in just a moment. But there's a curse, right? The earth becomes cursed. So before the garden, the earth was not cursed. Something was different about the earth. And when the earth becomes cursed, Adam and Eve also receive cursing, a, a curse, okay? So then we end up here, and God comes to Noah, and He says, I want you to build an ark. He gives them exact measurements for how to build the ark, okay? He says, I want you to build it like this. We're going to preserve life. Here's how we're going to do it, because what's going to happen is I'm going to come, and I'm going to flood the earth, Right? What did that flood look like? It was not just simply rain, but the Scripture says that the firmament, something that was surrounding the earth, collapsed in, right? And, and however that chemical breakdown is, it turned into H2O as it fell down, right? And it created oceans. It created bodies of water, okay, that were not present before. And when the flood took place, he builds an ark, not by going, well, you know, God said to do it this many uh, cubits, but, you know, that's just, he just meant a lot, right? So, I'll just do the best I can. That's a big tree. We'll just cut a hole in it and climb inside of it. No, they used the measurements that were there. So, some type of age takes place right here. And during this age of time, the sons of God And I think this is important for us to understand the millennial reign. The sons of God have interaction with man. It says in Genesis 6 that they did. And then post-Genesis 6, we enter into this new period. And we really could argue even in here that we have the Tower of Babel. You know what I'm saying? Uh, as even a divide. Something takes place in this area where we have kings that are making all of the decisions. Then Jesus shows up, and until we get to the next age, this is the age of the church. And some interesting things are happening throughout here. Man cannot live with whoever the sons of God are that are talked about in the Scriptures and live without sin. We still continue to sin, so God removes the sons of God. Maybe the argument was, maybe the argument was, okay, well, God, we've just got bad leadership around us when it comes to spiritual beings, and if we had better leadership, then we would be better people. So, God says, all right, here, I'll give you kings. You can rule yourself. What happens? 
With kings, they don't do a good job, right? The kings turn them into slaves, manipulate them, take advantage of them, create rebellion and war. So we get over here to this side, and now we get the church age, right? The kings are still around, and you've got these warring factions, and instead of the church rising up and being the leader, the church just becomes subordinate to the kings and the governments doing their bidding, right? And then the argument here might be, well, we've had bad kings, the church is filled with hypocrites, and we're going to find ourselves here in this thousand-year period, right? So go back to Revelation chapter 20. It uses this term, I think a literal term, six different times. Here in verse 2, here in verse 3, second half of verse 4, verse 5, and then verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7 is the sixth one, right? And then look at this. It says, and will come out to... Dis- it, let me back up. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So why is there a thousand year period? Why is there a thousand-year period? Well, a couple of things here. There are, first of all, loads of promises for Israel and for the church and regarding Jesus that have to be fulfilled during that time. We have a lot of prophecy that is to be fulfilled during this period of time. Things that have not and cannot be fulfilled until then. More importantly, though, this period of time will once and for all prove that the problem of sin is in our fallen nature and that we need to be changed, not the world around us. That it's not the responsibility of somebody else to bring the change, that I am the problem, that I need a Savior, that I am the one with the fallen nature. Now, how will this thousand-year period be different, right? If we look at some of the differences in the past 6,000 years of humanity, uh, here are some things that we have to look forward to. There will be worldwide peace. And I'm going to just bullet through a bunch of scriptures. Psalm 72, verse 7. In his days, uh, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Micah 4, verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord uh, from Jerusalem. He shall judge between uh, many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Interestingly enough, go to New York City. The UN building has this passage uh, carved into the front of it as if the United Nations is the one that will fulfill the idea that nations will no longer need weapons. Look, the reality is there will not be a need for Tony Stark in the millennial reign, right? Weapons dealers are going to go out of business. I would sell stock as fast as possible once the Antichrist shows up, right? So if, unless you just want to just give your money away, get out of the market. Isaiah 11, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them, 
right? The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be incredible peace during this time, not just between nations, but between us and creation. Creation will have some type of harmony among it. Can I make an argument that that if we have said that living with the sons of God was a problem, if we have said living with worldly governments was a problem, if we have said living with the church is a problem, one of the arguments that some would make is, well, we live in a fallen world. What else can we do? I think we have a thousand years of the curse from Genesis 3 being lifted in which there is now not only peace, right, but there is plenty for everyone. Ezekiel 34, verse 26. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. 34, 27. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. 36, 29, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Amos 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. If the curse that is on the earth is lifted, right, then somehow vegetation is able to grow at a rate that it is needing to be plowed and harvested faster than those who are preparing it. There will be worldwide worship of Jesus. Isaiah eleven nine. 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 66, 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. There will be extended lifespans. Uh, Isaiah 65, right? So in the curse, what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? We see that life, then death enters the picture, right? Now we are in a post-flood world. Uh, lifespans can, I mean, we think that somebody that makes it to be 100, 110 has lived a really long life. Uh, Isaiah 65 verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And the idea being that a hundred, at a hundred years, you still, you're still considered to be a child during this period of time. 
and there will be worldwide happiness. There will be joy. Isaiah 9, you, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah 12, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 14, 7, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. Even after 1,000 years of peace and plenty, though, some will choose rebellion. And this is where, this is what we're all honestly waiting on. This is where judgment happens, and all of the struggle of humanity, the struggle of a sinful nature, it all comes to an end. It is the moment where even after a thousand years of living on this planet with no hardship, direct access to Jesus, nations living at peace, there's joy, there's plenty, it says that the enemy will be given an opportunity to roam once more, and humanity will believe the lies that he tells. And what does it all go back to? Genesis 1, the knowledge of good and evil. And we come all the way here to the end of Revelation, and the enemy is given one more chance to propagate the knowledge of good and evil. And what will happen? Philippians 2 Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. There will be a judgment, there will be a separation. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about the judgment, and there are uh, two judgments that we go through, okay? Uh, and I'm going to break this down for you, but you're going to have an eternal judgment that is a heaven and hell determination. Which location will you spend eternity? And there's a secondary judgment that takes place where you are judged for uh, the way that you lived your life, the fruit that you bore. And that is important for you to be aware of. Do not live in ignorance thinking that it does not matter because it does matter and the Scripture tells us that it matters. So next week, I really will wrap this up and we're going to be talking about that. Let's stand to our feet. One of the interesting things that doesn't hold any serious weight to the argument, though, is uh, how that we have a 6,000-year uh, time period for man and a 1,000-year millennium uh, that together that's 7,000 years that during the uh, time of the Antichrist, that will be a seven-year period. If that is something that is hidden secret inside of Scripture for us, then I think that it could lead to the argument that we are uh, fast approaching uh, the return of Jesus. Uh, and if that's the case, regardless of whether, really honestly, whether it is Jesus' return or the fact that we all then will go to be with Him in death, we should be more serious about how we live our lives. We should be more serious about how we engage with the community around us, what we stand for, what we stand against. 
what we're willing to say and what we're willing to be quiet about uh, because it matters. So if you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, today is a great day to do that. Today is a great day to declare Jesus as Lord of your life. If you know Jesus as Lord of your life and your life is filled with compromise, please know this, it matters. Jesus cares. He cares how you live your life. He cares the in, about the impact and the influence that you are having on the world around you. And, and I, I encourage you to make things right with him and to change course, right? Uh, I, I think in terms of how often the mob is wrong, right? Uh, you see the screaming mob and, you, and your heart goes, oh, look at all those people. There must be something there. And then what do we do? We, we, some of us virtue signal and go, oh, I, I stand with the mob, right? And then some of us go and stand with the mob. But uh, I think about the mob that stood there before Pilate and said, give us Barabbas, screaming and yelling, fists in the air. They wanted a thief, not the Messiah. You see, the ends justified the means. There was no evidence that he was a fraud, but in fact, there was evidence to the contrary. And still the mob said, give us Barabbas. I, I just, I would encourage you to be slow to rally with the mob. Oftentimes the mob is mob mentality, mob ideas. It is fueled by deceit and lies. And it's okay to stand in contradiction to what the narrative of the world is. We wanna be standing in harmony with Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus or if you need to make things right, we wanna pray with you. Uh, I have, we have our prayer ministry teams will be in the back uh, when service is over, go talk with them. The scripture also says if you're sick in body, if you're going through a difficult season, you know, take it to the Lord, bring it to the elders of the church. Uh, I tell people all the time when I'm counseling that if I make myself available and then you are walking through a difficult season and you don't call me, that's on you, not on me, right? It's the same thing with Jesus. If you're going through something and, and you don't bring it to him, that's on you. He is available. The access is there. Take the opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, uh, your blessings, how you show up every day in our lives, Lord. I pray that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be encouraged to live lives that reflect your glory and honor, that honor you, and Lord, that you would speak to us and move through us. Use us as a church, use us as families, use us as individuals to impact our community for the, for the glory of the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. And we love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Hey, guys, we love you. Have a safe Memorial Day uh, tomorrow, the rest of today. We'll see you next Sunday, as always. Go change your world.